1: From the Mecca Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah. This is Heart of the Matter, where institutionalized religion meets Jesus Christ face to face. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. We praise the true and living God for allowing us to be part of this His ministry. Just to let you know, we have a winter special going on right now. All four CDs of In His Words. You can learn the Word of God set to music. Outstanding music, I think. You can get four books right now. If my kingdom were of this world and my servants would fight. Shield of Faith by Brandon Peterson. I was a born-again Mormon and where Mormonism meets biblical Christianity face-to-face in A to Z doctrinal compendium. Wow, that's a big word. Comparative. And uh, also another book that we will be sending out, uh, publishing in uh, spring, called Giving God a Chance to Make Sense, Part 1. So all of that can be had for your... I always forget, I I need Derek to tell me every week how much this offer is. But Derek, it's... $53 plus shipping and handling. What's the shipping and handling typically? Six, eight bucks. bucks. So it's not like we send it to you $53 plus a $28 shipping and handling. We give it to you pretty cheap. And we're trying to get that to you so you can use it as presents and help us keep uh, inventory moving. And we think it's a good deal. If you do, check it out by going to www.hotm.tv and check out the store. We got a lot to cover tonight, so let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we uh, we love you. We pray that uh, people can discern that uh, we seek you in spirit and in truth. We aren't here to divide. We are here to divide between uh, soul and spirit, and to try to ascertain what you want us to know. We pray that your spirit will abide the things I. Suggest and say what are errant. You'll make clear to people's minds through your spirit and your word what is truth. But that divisions and anger and hatred will get put aside amongst brothers and sisters. We can get along and try to figure things out together and give some leeway when thoughts are different. So we pray that we can do that in preparation to bringing LDS people into the body, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. Lord. We love you. We seek you in Jesus' name. Amen. So two weeks ago, we touched on some introductory questions that we need to consider before we get into what the Bible really says about afterlife punishment, for lack of a better phrase. So first, two weeks ago, before we had Mark Pazant on last week, two weeks ago, we asked, is God love? And we answered from Scripture, yes, he certainly is. And we said that his kind of love never fails nor does it lose out to any other force in the universe. Do you agree with that? Do you believe that? Ask yourself the question. Then we ask, is God all-knowing? And what we meant by that is, did God know all things prior to him creating them and how they would turn out? The answer we gave was, yes, God is all-knowing. And we gave the reasons why. Again, dost thou concur? Do you agree with that? Third question we asked was, is God all powerful? This is a very big question. took us a while to talk about it because it includes elements relative to free will, predestination, sovereignty of God, as we've come to call it, and a number of other factors. So in the end, the question came out to be, does God have the power, ability to get his way in the end? That was the question we asked. We said, yes, he does. What do you think? Does he or doesn't he? The fourth question we asked is a two-parter, and we left off with it. It was, does God desire that all people would be saved? Ask yourself that. And does God desire that any should perish? These are very different questions, by the way. But those were the two that we said. Interestingly enough, there are many Christians out there, good, well-meaning Christians who when asked this last question, actually respond by saying, no, God does not desire that all people would be saved. And to the second part, they actually suggest that God does desire that not only some, but that many will perish, truly. And we're left holding kind of a paradoxical bag of beliefs. If God desires that some, even many will perish, how could we describe him as the ultimate entity of love that is patient and long suffering with a love that never fails? And if he is love, how could the same God fully aware of the outcome before creating anything move ahead and create most of the human race that he knows will burn forever in a dismal, painful afterlife? And if he's all powerful Why doesn't he use his power to redeem all humankind from eternal punishments? And if he can save all of humanity from eternal punishment, but doesn't, how could we view him as benevolent and virtuous and even victorious? And if he can't redeem all of mankind, what does this say about his power? Let me go back a minute. The year is July 1509, a babe is born in France. His name is Yihon Calvin, later called John Calvin. And he is the father of a system of Christian theology known today as Reformed Theology or Calvinism. Now, John Calvin was a very intelligent man, trained as a lawyer, devout Catholic, ordained, In time, he abandoned Catholicism for Martin Luther's revolution, which is today known as the Protestant Reformation, uh, meaning people protesting against the Catholics and reforming their teachings and practices. Armed with a steely mind and a penchant for order and austerity, Calvin decided when he read and studied the Bible, a few general principles which were later summarized in five points by a group of people who did not agree with him, okay? They're the ones who came up with the acronym known as the TULIP in Calvinism, people who didn't agree with him. Let me say at the onset that there are many, many great and devout Christians who embrace all five points of modern Calvinism, and live in the Christian faith far better than I ever hoped to. So please don't misunderstand my, um, my attack on Calvin's systemized theology as an attack on Calvinists. I don't like Calvinism, but I would never say a Calvinist isn't a Christian. The fact alone suggests to me that doctrine does not matter because the same could be said for ardent Arminianists, and Catholics, and, and even Mormons. Again, so we can, we can critique the theology, but the people, I'm, I'm not critiquing the person. That's up to them and God. What we can say, however, in the face of what Calvin created, is that doctrine does, in fact, divide and destroy even lives and creates the antithesis of what the good news, once received ought to create in the hearts of those who love the Lord, which is unity and love and patience with each other, no matter what our differences are. So more on that another time, back to Calvin's five points. We have said using scripture to support our claims that God is love and that God's love never fails and God is all knowing and God is all powerful, sovereign as Calvin sort of originated. On all of these points, five-point Calvinists would agree. They would say, we agree with all that. But when we ask that fourth question, does God desire that all people would be saved, and does God desire that any should perish, the Calvinists, in one of the most convoluted responses in the history of Christianity, says, no, he does not. Wait, 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 I find myself asking every time. Let me understand this clearly. You believe God is love, right? Yes, I do. You believe that love never fails. That's right, says the Calvinist. God is love. Love never fails. Are you, and you believe that before creating anything, God knew the outcome of all the choices and events in universal history? Correct, comes the answer. And you believe God has the power to accomplish anything, and his will is always done. Sovereign, they say but you don't think God wants to redeem all people and that he actually, before creating everything, knew and desired to have the majority of the human race suffer and burn in hell forever and ever and ever. You betcha, they'll say. Why? Why does God want most of the human race to burn in hell forever and ever and ever, especially if he has the option to do something about it? The answer is often because it's his good pleasure. Some others will say, because in this, he is glorified. In the fact that he does save some, but puts others in hell, he is glorified for even saving some. Some will add, none of us deserve heaven at all, So the fact that any are saved is a tremendous picture of God's love. That's how they see it. I mean, really? This is the God who we agree is love and his love never fails. And he knew all things from the beginning. He has the power to get his own will in every area. But in the end of his own goodwill and pleasure, he created the majority of the human race not to just deconstruct and disappear, but to burn in a literal place of fire forever and ever and ever. Something is seriously, egregiously wrong with what Calvin constructed from scripture. Something that has to be deconstructed so that God starts making sense uh, in an age where the Bible ought to make some sense. You know, it's been around a long time. It's been in the hands of zealots and some very stringent, legalistically minded, toe the line people. And we've glommed onto that. In some case, some people have gone the other way and turned into licentiousness, which isn't the way either. But we've got to be able to take the Bible and, and have it make some sense to people who question things like this. I'm not saying we can understand everything about, there is to know about God, not in the least. But I am saying that what we do know and agree on about God is not coming together in a reasonable form when ideas like the five points continue to thrive among believers. In fact, in my opinion, the whole matter becomes diabolical. It's nonsensical, and it creates all sorts of disruption to the beautiful picture of the good news that Jesus came and saved the world. I don't understand why we have to bring in an ism to, to, to thwart that beautiful thing and lead people into this mindset that is so horrifically futile. Um, I will respond with what the Bible says to our fourth question in a minute, but to sort of dovetail into it, there's a fifth question when asked. most questions, Most Christians will answer in the affirmative. The fifth question is, does Jesus suffer or did Jesus suffer for the sins of the whole world, for all humankind? Again, where most Christians, having read the Bible, say, of course he did. The whole world, the five-point Calvinist says, no, he only suffered for the sins of whom God elected to be saved. Okay? Now, taking the rest of their theology into account, while I believe unbiblical, we have to admit that a limited atonement on Christ's part would be in harmony with the other five points, the other four points Calvinists talk about. See, to the five-point Calvinists, since God knew all things from beforehand, including whom he would choose to save... In Calvinism, there's no free will. God chooses who is going to be saved and who's not. His sovereignty his sovereignty makes the choice. Man does not get involved. It would not be fair or right for him to have Jesus pay for the sins of a bunch of people he knew in advance he was not going to elect. Therefore, in five-point Calvinism, there is a limited atonement, meaning, again, that Jesus only paid for the sins of the ones God has chosen. The rest of them, no payment has been made. When we think about it, Calvinists have a good point in this stance relative to their doctrine, as I said. I mean, if God knows all things before he ever creates them, and he is love, and he is powerful, and he doesn't desire to save all men, but desires that many would perish, then why would he have his son pay for everybody's sins? He wouldn't. It makes no sense. So, The Calvinist says Jesus only paid for the sins of those that God chose to be saved, no others. You with me so far? Now, in opposition to Calvin and his doctrines, a group of Dutch reformists popped up, and they're known as the Remonstrants, okay? And they were under the leader of a man named Jacobus Arminius, and he had an alternative view of Christian theology. All of this is important for us to understand eternal punishment. Like the Calvinists, these Arminianists collectively agree that God is love, that love never fails, that God knows all things before creating them, and that he is, they say, all-powerful too. The problem with their saying that God is all-powerful is they also simultaneously suggest that man can choose to rebel against God, and God, who is supposed to be all-powerful, can't do anything about it. Because the Arminius says, man has free will. So on the one hand, we have the Calvinist who says, God points, there is no free will. And we have the Arminius who says, there is man's free will. And so in this point, God who points and says, you will be saved no matter if you want to or not, and you won't. We have an unloving picture, in my opinion. And then on this hand, we have God who is supposed to be loved, but he's also kind of uh, uh, impotent because He can't do anything when man says, no, I'm not going to follow you. Why have, is there another, is there another view possible within the Bible besides these two? Why have we agreed to either one or the other of these opinions in Christianity? First of all, they don't make sense. And second of all, and most importantly, the Bible clearly presents another view. But we, we don't always see it or admit it. Additionally, when speaking of Arminia, Arminius' view, God created all of us full well knowing that billions and trillions would wind up burning in hell eternally because of their free will. It doesn't make any sense there either, does it? He has all full knowledge before creating one thing. He knows he's going to give everybody free will, so we think the Arminius way is, more, is better But he knows that the free will of most men are gonna choose against him. So he's created this place for Satan and his angels to throw all men in who by their own free will have decided not to choose God. So these end results of Arminianism not only challenge the notion that God is all powerful, they challenge his love. And they challenge the fact that that where scripture says, love never fails, God who is described as love fails trillions of times. His love does fail and his power is limited, and he can't do anything about it, and he created everybody knowing this would be the end result. Does this stuff make sense to you? Does, does, it, does it make any sense to you? Now, you could say, well, he's God. We can't. He tells us to seek him out. He says, know me. Jesus said to know him is life eternal, and John says he is love. So we, read, we have all these factors, and yet we just kind of turned a blind eye and say, well, we don't really get it. You know, all I know is you're going to burn in hell forever, dude. And that's all. You know, and we just, that's it. So add into the mix that the Armenianist view of God has his son suffer for the sins, because the Arminianist says Jesus paid and suffered for the sins of the whole world. But they realize that the whole world won't be saved or the whole world won't be reconciled or redeemed. And so Jesus' suffering was in vain. So God then becomes unmerciful because of the, uh, what he allowed his son to go through. And we can see that we have as many issues with Arminianism as we have with Calvinism. On the Calvinist side, God is quite arbitrary in his love. And on the Arminian side, he's quite powerless uh, because man is in charge and or Satan. Listen, Mormonism fails in the very same ways and for the very same reasons as Calvinism and Arminianism. But Smith, at least, repulsed by these two traditions. The guy was smart, and he said, there's no way it falls into these two categories. He tried to do something about it. So what he did was he appealed to universalism, in a sense, and he went to his imagination outside of the Bible, and like Swedenborg, and other religious visionaries who were popular at the time, and he created his own answers. But the Bible clearly lays out the alternative that is there for us to consider. Now, is it possible, just possible, just consider that God has been approaching the redemption of humankind in an altogether different manner than how Calvin or the Remonstrants or the Mormons or the Universalists have suggested? Is it possible? Maybe there is a plan or approach that has been ignored and discounted or pushed into the corner by zealots who literally will read things in the Bible and say, that's how it is. You got to believe it. What way could this possibly be? Before detailing it and using the Bible to support it in the next couple weeks to come, understand that unlike five-point Calvinism, or Arminianism, or Mormonism, this approach fully allows for God to be love in the fullest sense of the word, for God's love to never, ever fail, for God to be absolutely all-knowing and all-powerful, for man to have free will in the presence of God's power and knowledge, for God to accomplish his good will that none would perish, that every bit of Jesus' suffering would be appreciated and effective until ultimately bringing every knee to bow and every tongue to confess that he is Lord. This approach allows for God to have the ultimate and total victory over Satan and the the faulty will of every human being. It allows for hell and the lake of fire to be realities, not discarded, And said they're not real and they're not there. They are and not to be trifled with, but reasonably purposed. And it allows for God to be wholly just and wholly merciful and for the wicked and the righteous to receive according to their works of faith and love. It will show that in the end, God has always been in total control and will see his will accomplished in spite of us. This alternative view allows for all of that. It uses the Bible to do it and it puts to bed the calvinistic and the arminianistic views that are, are are warped in the in the questions that we just asked ourselves what is this underappreciated unrecognized plan the bible completely endorses total reconciliation of all human beings to himself the total reconciliation of all human beings to himself. This is not saying people won't go to hell. This is not saying there isn't a lake of fire where people will go through because they're carrying with them things they shouldn't. This is not saying that all are saved. They're not. Because we're saved from hell and the lake of fire, that is not saying that. All it's saying is God will reconcile to himself everybody in accordance to those things I just read that he would do and could do through his love and power. We can call it the God is all in all plan. Let me try to explain. We'll use one scripture and then we'll open up the phones and read emails. In John chapter 12, beginning at verse 32, Jesus says something remarkable. He says, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. Then in verse 33, John adds, This he said, signifying what death he should die. These words of the Lord and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me, serve as the basis for a tremendous amount of discussion, if you think about it. We might first wonder why the Lord said what he said and why he said it. And then we might wonder why the Lord describes himself as being lifted up from the earth. Then we might wonder, if the Lord will draw all men unto him. That's what he said. Or if this means something different than what the word suggest. And if it doesn't mean he will draw all men to him, we're presented with a whole bunch of other questions like, did the Lord suffer for the sins of the whole world? Or just those who believe, as the Calvinists maintain, if for the whole world, why? Why would he suffer for the sins of the whole world? What would be the purpose? Is there a purpose in that somewhere? especially since it appears that most of the world would reject his offering. And according to most Christians, go to hell forever. And if he paid for the sins of the whole world, does sin continue to exist? If it's been paid for, if it's been blotted out, does it continue to exist? This pushes us further into thought about the Lord's sacrifice because if he paid for all the sins of the world and if he draws all to him, but most refuse his offering, was his suffering in vain? Then we have to ask if God even wants all men to be drawn to him. If he doesn't, why? Isn't that kind of weird that he created all of us in his love, but he doesn't desire to reconcile all of us to him? Even a father, even a bad father who's got five kids desires that all of them are going to be come home for Thanksgiving. I mean, you're saying God who knew about, he doesn't desire all, but he wants most to be departed and to burn. Where do we, when do we check our minds in on God and his love? Loving us so much he sent his son. If he does desire this, does he get his way to reconcile all men or does Satan win? Does man will, man's will win? From there, we have to ponder about the efficacy of God's power. And this query takes us even deeper and we have to wonder about human beings' abilities to make choices. Needless to say, that verse I just read to you is rife with import on how we view God, his ability, his plan of salvation, the sacrifice of his son, notions of man's ability to choose and free will, and the loving omniscience of God to kickstart all this in the first place. Now I have views on the subject which are not unique to me. There's a body of believers who follow after what I believe and teach. They rarely speak out publicly. Some of them are noted people. They don't do it because of fear of retribution from both their own congregates and other pastors and believers at large. I will present them as we go along in the next couple weeks. You can question them. Please do. Challenge them. Open up your Bible. See what we're saying is true. Reject them. Accept them if you want. But just understand that that the, 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 the teaching is not novel. The teaching has been around. It's just been pushed in the back. The second line of the verse 32, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me in the Greek, will draw all men unto me is pantas helkuso pros, and mauton. It's the future active of the Greek word helkuo, and it means to draw, even to drag, to drag all men unto me. Sometimes used to it means to attract. Men is not found in most of the manuscripts, and so we're left with "I will draw all unto me, even drag all unto me." We also note where Jesus says in John six forty four, "No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me. Draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day." The same verb translated "draw" is used as "drag." It could be, and I will drag. Uh, him so there's a great debate on whether Jesus means that he will draw all to him as in all people who have never lived ever lived or if he means all once he is lifted up may be drawn to him there's a debate on that I get it perhaps a review of other passages of scripture will help us to decide you tell me what you think these passages mean Romans 5.18 says, Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. All men. Does all not mean all? Hebrews 2.9 says, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Does every man mean every? Same Greek word. 1 Timothy 2.4, speaking of God, says, Who will have all men be saved? Who will have all men be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth? Hmm, does scripture mean what it says or not? Call the pastor, call the Pope, call the prophet, call the ordained ones. Let's find out, does it mean what it says or no? Titus 2.11 says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And, of course, John 3, 16, verse 17. Listen to it. We read it a lot. Listen to it. And for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, and whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. The world or not? It's getting better. Listen. Second Peter 3, 9 is interesting. It says this the Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some men uh, count slackness, but is long suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Did you hear that? Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Does God get his will or is he not powerful enough? Do we get to thwart it because we're stronger than him? Because Satan is more powerful, he can steal souls away from God? Finally, Paul says something really interesting in 1 Timothy 4.10. He says, For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially those who believe. How do you take that? Savior of all men, especially those who believe? How do you take that in and justify it and say that God doesn't want to reconcile everybody to himself? How do we do that? Especially those who believe. In the very presence of these passages and several more, many Christians have said something like, well, God certainly wants, he wants to save all, but not all would come. Such a response forces us to question God's power and His ability to have His way, and leaves the power in Satan's hands, and in men's. Right? Other Christians will say, "Well, God does not want to draw men to Him; only some." That causes us to wonder: Well, does He? Is He love? I mean, most people who who we know who have rejected Him on this earth—they're pretty cool people. I mean, there's some evil ones. We use Hitler. We use Idi Amin in this, but there's some good neighbors, you know, who haven't really received Christ and in this life, and hell forever, you know? And then, and then this has caused other Christians to wonder, does his drawing to all have anything to do with our willingness to receive it? Well, if it doesn't, that we have to ask about his sovereignty and how our will can trump his. All of these questions and answers lead us to a very big questions like, so if God is love and God knows everything from before he even created us and God is truly sovereign and God desires that all would be saved, especially those who believe, what are we to think about being Christian, about heaven and hell, the purpose of life and on and on and on and on. I want to understand what Jesus means in John 12, 32, when he says, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. I want to know what that means. Such understanding has to come from the word of God if it's going to have any lasting merit. And that's what we're going to do in the next few weeks. We're going to get now into the word of God and support the stance that total reconciliation is his plan from the beginning. Hang with us. You'll be blown away by the biblical supports that suggest this is right. Okay, we have David in Odessa, Texas, and we have Christian in Olympia, Washington. We're going to get to you right after this. I would be doing the Lord and every viewer a disservice if I said Mormonism is Christian, because it's a lie. American evangelical Christianity. We're gonna go after its politicking. We're gonna go after its demands. We're gonna go after its culture. We're going to go after its doctrine relative to what the Bible says. I do not believe any Christian has the right to demand that another believer receive such man-made terms or creeds or demands us to receive anything else. So I'm not going to get into a war with with other believers over doctrine. I'm not gonna do it. That is the opposite of what we're told to do. We're told to love, but think and go to God and open up your scripture and search and let's try to figure this out together and let's cast off anything that is not biblical. In the end, we hope this couple will be able to produce a little baby we call truth. 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 That was me on the guitar, by the way. Just kidding. All right, let's go to David in Odessa, Texas. David, you're on Heart of the Matter.
2: Oh, hello, Sean. Hi, David. Um, I, I called uh, about two weeks ago uh, about this little show, Mormon showdown that I was going to have uh, with my friend. And um, basically what happened was I, I went over there. My friend was there with the two elders. And uh, I kind of thought we were going to have a debate, but they were obviously trying to convert me. And uh, I asked one question that I got a really disturbing answer to. Uh, I asked them about blood atonement, and they said, you'll know when you need to know. <laughs> oh. they, they told my new Mormon friend when he asked about that. You'll know when you need to know. That's Is that not a little creepy?
1: Yeah, that's creepy. Although um, it's creepy in the Mormon sense, although biblically, uh, there is a, you know, a don't cast your pearls before swine uh, thing that Jesus says, so they could... They could defend themselves with that, that you're not ready for that level of knowledge.
2: Uh, I guess, but when you're talking about blood atonement, something like blood atonement, I figure, you know, that you would want to know. But, you know, they, they had him so, I guess, brainwashed or whatever, that he just said, oh, okay, whatever, and, and uh, that was the end of it. And um, also, they gave me this Book of Mormon to read, and I don't even know. Should I even, like, waste my time? I don't Reading so. it at all, good. I, I you know, because they're like, oh, you'll you'll feel something, and I, I just Bored. I can't, I can't imagine that happening. I feel like it's just some sort of mind trick to like, you know, maybe your brain is anticipating some sort of feeling, so you do feel something. Yeah, I think and that's I know part it of it. Speaking the Bible, not, not trusting your feelings as well.
1: So. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. It probably is all kind of uh, set up for you to have an experience. And when you take the book and you start, you have one, you think it's true, the whole whole deal. I'd stick to the Bible, David. Tell your, tell your friend to do the same and uh, keep working on those guys. Share it with, in, with truth and love, my friend. Yes, sir. Also, I was wondering also if you could possibly
2: think about putting your book on audiobook because I work a lot. It would be awesome to listen to it.
1: It would be a good idea. We, uh, uh, we try to get someone who has a handsome voice or a female with a beautiful voice to do it. I don't want to sit there and read my boring books. and. Uh, I, don't, I, I would listen to it. All right. Well, well, we'll work on that one.
2: All right. Thank you very much, Sean.
1: Love you, brother. Thanks. Bye. We're going to Christian in Olympia, Washington. Christian, you're on Heart of the Matter.
2: Hey, Sean. Hi. Hey. Is my name really that hard to pronounce?
1: Well, it's spelled with a K.
2: Yeah. And I... I did... Here's the thing. So, I'm sitting here with a buddy of mine, and I'm like, he's going to pronounce my name wrong.
1: <laughs> you were right. Because it doesn't look like the... It doesn't have the C-H-R. Uh, I know. Uh, anyway,
2: so, my question I have is about divorce. Oh, yeah. So, um, my grandpa is about to get married for the fifth time. Whoa. Oh, yeah. And... Um, yeah, that's a whole other phone call right there. But uh, <laughs> <I got you. laughs> So, um, I, and everyone in my family is just kind of like, oh, this is ridiculous. You know, you can't even hold a marriage and blah blah blah. And, and so I'm just kind of wondering, like, is when's it okay to get divorced? I know I saw like a month or two ago, you yeah, uh, you talked about marriage and like what marriage means to you and everything, which I really liked a lot. And so awesome. and about you know being your one and only. And so what yeah. happens if you get divorced?
1: Well, I mean, straight up, this really bothers people, but the straight up biblical answer, Christian, is if you have been, uh, if you have had a conjugal relationship with somebody, that is your marriage. Uh-huh. And so whoever you have a conjugal relationship with outside of that, uh, you are uh, guilty of adultery, according to Christ. So, yeah. it, 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 but here's the thing. He said, if we look upon a woman with lust in our heart, we've committed adultery. So mm-hmm. it's not like, hey, you're an adulterer and I'm not. Uh, we're all probably guilty of adultery. Uh, it's yeah. ju- it's just, that's the law of how it works under the law. Uh, divorce, in, in, in my opinion, if it happens, it's no different than, than I, I know it's unfortunate and I know it's painful, especially when children are involved. But if it happens, it's no different than somebody uh, in this world telling an egregious lie. I think it's all unfortunate. I think it's all part of being in the human experience, and I thank God that Jesus came and saved us. And I think your grandfather could be married 20 times and divorced 19, and if he's a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and he seeks him and he's trying to seek him in faith, that that's all that matters. Okay. Yeah, that's my, that's my view. So I think we're guilty under what Jesus said. Absolutely. But I think all of us are guilty, and I think because we are not under the law, we are free. Right.
2: Yeah, that's very nicely said.
1: Hey, I'll learn your name next time, Christian. Thanks for watching. Yeah, bye. Bye. Uh, You know, it's tough stuff. I know of a church in this state where the pastor actually came down from the thing and told a couple, uh, a man who had been divorced, to leave. You've got to be kidding. uh, Come on. You know, a divorce is not a, a fun thing. It's not an easy thing. It's not something that you want to promote, but it happens. Just like fornication and and lust and thief, thievery and everything happens. Thank God Jesus came and saved us. So let's get off the law. Let's love each other, bring each other around, and help support each other through this place that is called life. All right, we had someone call last week when Mark was on asking about Revelation 21 in the preterist view. Uh, Neither Mark or I were familiar with what he was saying. In addition to that, I got an email from Gail that says, in part, I've been watching your show about prophecy. I am puzzled. You made a comment several shows ago that you don't understand the revelation. That means the book of Revelation. And stated that it was one book that could have been left out of the Bible. (laughs) Okay, I just have to say, I just said if there was a book to be left out, Martin Luther said it should have been James and or uh, Ezra. Um, I, I would tend to go with Revelation. I mean, if the if a book was going to be loud, I'm not saying it should have been, but if one could have been, <laughs> I wish it would have been that one. Um, she goes on and said, uh, so you said you're going to cover Revelation 21. It's going to be interesting to see your take on the chapter. Please also consider chapter one, verses one through three of Revelation. So, okay. Then she says, adds, the Bible is the word of God. I believe that. And I believe clearly stated that there is nothing meaningless in the scriptures. Uh, okay. First of all, the book of Revelation was written to the seven churches uh, by John, as Mark pointed out last week, not to us. We can apply things in it to us, but it was not written to us. The whole Bible was not written to us. It was written to them at that time. We read it now, we learn and we grow. I don't know how many times we have to cover that, but if you try to take everything that Jesus said to his uh, apostles and apply it to yourself, you're in trouble because it wasn't written to you. It's a history book of divine uh, inspiration. We read and we grow spiritually by it. All right. So secondly, it was written by John who was given signs and symbols by an angel. And it was the signs and symbols John looked at where he wrote what he saw. It's highly interpretive and it's applicable to that time, those seven churches, and all that was going on in the Bible then and prior to that, not today, futurists. Third, we can't take things and read into them, make them literal when they are certainly representative. So let's read the first two passages of Revelation 21 because as I looked at it, I could see those are probably the passages that the caller was asking about. What is Revelation 21? How do you explain that relative to preterism? Revelation 21: 1 through two says, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away and there was no sea. Okay, now futurists run amok. I heard this when I was at Calvary Chapel like Noah. There's not going to be any sea later. There'll be no sea. I grew up by the beach. I used to think, oh, I love the ocean. I mean, it's two-thirds of our world is ocean. A tremendous economy of fish and beautiful things and no sea. Oh, and, and so we take that literally. And when Jesus returns, there will be no sea, they say, Okay. John writes, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth were passed away. What do you think he was talking about? We talked about new heavens and new earths and old heavens and old earths relative to the Old Testament before. When God carved, Jerusalem, when God carved Israel out for himself, he said, I have now created, this was well after the creation in Genesis, a new heaven and a new earth talking about those people, and he described to them being a new heaven and a new earth. What John was saying in Revelation is that is going away. That, the new, the Jerusalem, the Israel, and all that has to do with Israel, which the Old Testament said is a new heaven and a new earth. John is saying that is being passed away, and there is no more sea. Listen, when Jesus returned, he came down in his kingdom, and he said he was going to return in his kingdom in judgment. That's in Matthew 19, 28. John the Baptist said, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's in Matthew 4:17. The apostles said the kingdom of heaven was at hand. That's Matthew 10:7. So Jesus even told them to pray for the kingdom of heaven to come. That's Matthew 6:10. Uh, so the new heaven and earth were established when Christ fulfilled everything and the new heaven, which he reigns over from on high and the new earth began. That's the symbolic language of how to understand that. So how are we to understand no sea? What does that mean? If you look at the idea of what the new heaven and the new earth is, go to Revelation 21.2. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven prepared as a bride adorned for her husband and i heard a great voice out of the heaven saying behold the tabernacle of god is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people and god himself shall be with them and be their god this is all imagery showing that the kingdom of heaven was established at that time the holy city new jerusalem is heaven the holy city new jerusalem is the kingdom of heaven the holy city new jerusalem is the kingdom of god The holy city, New Jerusalem, is the tabernacle of God. It's all right there. So New Jerusalem is not only the holy city, is not only heaven, is not only the kingdom of heaven, is not only the kingdom of God, it is the tabernacle of God and is now on the new earth, which Christ established by and through his shed blood, Coming, putting judgment upon uh, uh, Jerusalem, and finishing the whole thing up, wrapping it up good and tight. And now we have a new heaven and a new earth. With the new Jerusalem is in heaven, not made with hands. Now here's the key with the sea. Okay. Let's look at the new Jerusalem from a perspective of it being the tabernacle of God. In Solomon's temple, there was something called the sea. All right. In 1 Kings 7:23 it says and he made a molten sea. And it was 10 cubits from one brim to the other and it describes how he made this molten sea. All right? If you look at uh, 2 Chronicles 4:1, it says also he mo- made a molten sea of 10 cubits from brim to brim and it discusses how he decorated this. This sea stood on the southeast corner of the inner court of the temple. The sea was used by the priests to wash their hands and their feet before they entered the temple. The sea was present in Solomon's temple, probably reproduced at Herod's temple, which was destroyed uh, in 70 AD, but was used again for ceremonial washing of the high priest, okay? So there was no need for a sea in God's new tabernacle because Jesus, the new high priest, needed no ceremonial cleansing. So there's no sea. That's all he meant, If you were a Jew and you understood the molten sea of the Old Testament, you understood the fulfillment of everything happening with Christ's coming, there would be no sea. That's all it meant. It does not mean we're not going to have an ocean. And the futurists just take this stuff and build entire seminars on it and write books on, on it. Just be reasonable about it. The sea spoken of in Revelation 21, one is not the sea, the oceans of the earth, nor of the new earth, the sea that was once out in the outdated old tabernacle is no longer needed in the new Jerusalem, in the new tabernacle, in the new heaven, in the new earth. That's why second Corinthians five one says, for we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. It's all spiritual now. It's all a spiritual thing. This earthly rebuilding and all that is done for. And he goes on. You could read Hebrews 8.1 8, and uh, Hebrews 9.11. But uh, the writer, Gail, also said, just read the first three passages of Revelation, chapter one. Let me read them to you. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants the things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it unto his angel by his servant John, who bare record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things which he saw. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which were written therein for the time is at hand. Gail wanted me to read that as though I'm going to read it and go, Oh, blessed is he who reads the words of this prophecy. though This wasn't written to us. It was, I mean, I'm sure we could be blessed by it spiritually, but this is talking about hands-on manual of what to look for and what's going on to those people. And look at how many times he says in those three verses you gave me that time is at hand. Time for what? For the new heaven, for the new earth, for no more brazen uh, molten seas to be there to wash and do all the stuff. It's done. It's wrapped up. I hope that answers the question. Uh let's go on. Kim Cooper, oops, Kim C talks about grace. I remember hearing the words in relief society, we must live worthy of the Holy Ghost. You know, when I was LDS, that was a constant theme. You can uh now Bible does talk about grieving the Holy Ghost. Uh that grief is going to come, certainly by faithlessness. We will sin, but that's the beautiful thing about being covered by uh, Christ's blood once and for all. When we err and sin and make mistakes, the Holy Ghost doesn't run. He lives with us permanently. Uh, the LDS make uh, his, his, his visits to you very tenuous and based upon your performance in your life. That is not what the shed blood of Christ did. He did, opens up our heart, Holy Ghost moves in, makes a home and doesn't move out, okay? So unless faith goes completely, and that's, that's how the Holy Spirit is grieved when our faith lacks. But she says that one night she was reading Galatians 1 through 3 and it opened her eyes and it turned her from being somebody who was under the burden of trying to maintain the Holy Spirit in her life through her righteousness and actions to realizing that legalism was antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ and Galatians points that out. So that's what she wanted to say. Heath says, I'm a former uh, Mormon church member. I have come to know that Jesus Christ is my Savior and not my elder brother. I have a strong feeling that your concept of Christ's re- second return is on point. However, I'm left wondering, what are we waiting for now? I feel like maybe Mormonism has left some residue and I can't shake it off. And I know that the entirety of the church is waiting for Christ's return. It keeps you on edge, keeps you uh, focused on this thing to make sure you're worthy and holy. But if it's not the case, then what are we looking forward to? On the cynical side, I can't wait for this world to pass away. But from a fearful human point of view, it leaves me feeling as if there's nothing to look forward to. Please help me. Well, Heath... To understand that he came, fulfilled all things, his kingdom is established, and you are part of that kingdom is a great benefit. Uh, Again, to appeal to Mark last week, he pointed out how what a wonderful gift it is when you're going through trials to know that God is with you and to know that you are his and that you are walking with him and he is there to strengthen you and support you. We're here to serve him, and that means to love others and bring them along, to grow in faith, to grow in our knowledge, to help build his kingdom, to bring people to him to bring people who are lost, to give them that peace that they could have in this life by having him with them, to shine a light, to prepare for our own personal second coming, Heath, which we are preparing for right now. You're going to have your second coming. I'm going to have mine the moment we take our last breath. Prepare for that. I mean, in in love and in faith, to teach our children, to love our family and friends and and even enemies, to live as Christ. And and again, Heath, I've got to ask, since we've talked so much about this, what did the second coming of Jesus mean to a man who was a Christian his whole life and died yesterday? It didn't mean anything, Heath. It hasn't meant anything to people who have lived and died Christian lives for the past 2,000 years. you know. And, and it's just been something that's been heaped upon us to keep us on edge, to keep us doing what the church wants us to do to keep men in power, to keep you threatened and worried. And uh, there's freedom in Christ. There's relaxation. He finished it. He did it. The book is a record of that. We have it all right here. So let's read it and learn and grow. That's the beautiful thing. Stephanie Sutherland says, I recently signed from the LDS Church. I don't know where to turn for answers. I believe you teach because uh, it comes from Scripture. I am searching for truth. So far you've been able to help me tremendously on my journey. My question is, why do most born agains believe in the hellfire doctrine? Now, I don't know what that means when she says the hellfire doctrine. I think it means that in hell itself is fire that burns and not the lake of fire. It's not scriptural, yet I can't find anywhere local to attend because of this doctor. Now I'm feeling lost more than ever. To be honest, if it wasn't for the programs and teachings, I would be an agnostic. So this is one of the reasons why we go through this stuff is because if you go through and search the scripture, you've come out of Mormonism, you've been burned once. Let me tell you, you're going to be really sharp on the BS that comes. Or you've swallowed the Kool-Aid again. And the people who have swallowed it again, they get really bitter. When they realized that they uh, that they that they uh, stepped up to the bar and said for asked for a refill, so you know you know, you're going to be once burned, twice shy, and if you buy into it again and you find that fails you, it's really bad. And so we're trying to bring out the stuff that's never taught, never talked about, and try to bring some reasons so we can help the LDS who are coming out in droves. By the way. I mean, look how many we're getting. I used to be LDS. I left the LDS church. I've resigned. We get them all the time from all over the world. And, and, and so it's happening. Are we ready to bring them in? Because if you take a Latter-day Saint, and if you do, you know, I hope you seriously take it uh, to heart. If you take a former Latter-day Saint into your church and you teach him stuff that's bull crap, uh, you are doing a terrible thing to someone's soul. They've been burned once. They don't need to be burned twice. And they don't need your damned priesthood authority. And they don't need your tithes. And they don't need all the other shiitake mushroom soup. You wanna feed them so that they'll serve your damned community. You want them to be free in Christ. You want them to have that relationship and you want them to shake off the shackles of religion. And when they come out of that Mormon institution and they walk into yours, God help you if you put them under more uh, bondage. It's a a terrible thing to do to souls. So I hope the pastors who are are doing that uh, reconsider their ways. Uh, From Thailand, the Christians here, it's very dark. This is from Joe Pata. And he says the ministry is a blessing. I'm reading these because we never get to them. Lavaki, all the way from New Zealand, I am a current active temple recommend holder in New Zealand. Due to some recent events at the Church in New Zealand, my own personal search and listening to your station, I have my fundamental beliefs have been compromised. I guess I'm looking for a bit of advice on the way forward. I am happily married with four young children. My oldest is turning eight in December. Naturally, I am concerned about the spiritual well-being. I feel I am coming to know my Savior better, which has been awesome for me and my family. And to be honest, I... St- still values certain things in Mormonism, family home evening, baptism at eight years old. What do I do from here? If you can read our emails all the time, what do I do from here? What would you tell them? Well, just go find a good old church over there and, and walk down there and go on in and they will treat you well and everything's gonna be great. We used to say that. And what happens is we get emails six months later from people saying, I did that. Now, some churches are good, and they do it well, truly, but some don't. And what happens is you get bitter, bitter people. I don't want Lavaki and his four young kids and his wife to go into a Christian church and to hear Calvinism taught and to be put back under bondage or to be taught that Arminianism is the way or to be taught that they need to be fearful and prepare for the second coming of Jesus because it's right around the corner When I think we've clearly proven that there at least is another alternative to all that and give them some options instead of dogma. Do you see why we do what we do? Do you see why we went from doing all Mormon focus? You know, can Jerry, can Jerry, can Joseph carry gold plates through the forest under one arm while battling off? Can you see why we've done that? And something more needs to be done in this area rather than bashing on them. They're killing themselves. They've admitted Smith had 40 wives. That's just, that is just that is a chink in the armor and someone's going to stab right through it. So now is the time for us as a body to prepare ourselves to bring these people into a pure, true relationship with Christ Jesus, void of religion and all of the trappings that come with it by men who like power and money and control. And so it's tough medicine. No one likes it. I don't like it but it's necessary if we're going to do what's right for these people who are coming out. So next week, we're going to continue on talking about eternal punishment. We'll use the Bible, challenge it. Let's see what you come up with. I would suggest you're going to have your eyes open if you allow that to happen, but don't take my word for it. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter.
0: I'm on the right. going nowhere. I am an existential cowboy on the wind And I won't be coming out, I'm going in This man's awake, a storm's arising The dawn's waiting Till a hundred monkeys know And I can feel the light till monkeys start